the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients. Welcome to season two. I've been bursting with excitement to get back behind the microphone to share the incredible stories that we've been working on behind the scenes. We're launching season two during National Blood Donor Week, and this season we're doing things a little bit differently and telling the stories of both blood recipients and blood donors. For those that are new to the podcast this season, welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali community. Here at Milkshakes for Mali, we aim to bridge the gap of anonymity between Australian blood donors and their recipients. If you have ever been a blood donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile here on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Milkshakes for Mali is the name of our amazing lifeblood team. It was started by donors who were inspired to donate plasma and other blood products after hearing the story of our amazing three-year-old daughter, Mali, who has seronegative autoimmune encephalitis. Marley is now six and she is considered to be in remission. However, she will be reliant on plasma infusions for her whole life. Plasma infusion is life-saving for her when she relapses and it's life-preserving for every infusion in between. The information is in our show notes on how to register to donate and how to become part of the Milkshakes for Marley lifeblood team. We are opening season two with the story of blood donor, Dean Butcher. Dean's sister is the incredible Holly, who is the author of the viral Facebook post and letter, Life Advice from Hull, which was planned as a farewell to Holly's family and friends on her passing, but has now reached millions of people worldwide. It's been widely shared by Australian media, international media outlets, and was also addressed by the US press secretary. Holly passed away in 2018, 15 months after a diagnosis of stage 4 Ewing sarcoma, which is a rare type of cancer that affects bones or the tissues around bones. During Holly's treatment, she received countless bags of blood, particularly platelets, for when she went neutropenic following chemotherapy, which left her incredibly vulnerable and susceptible to infection. Her dying wish was for her brother to become a blood donor, and to continue her legacy of blood donation advocacy. A link to her letter is in the show notes. And I welcome Dean to the Milkshakes for Mali community. All right, Dean, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. It's an interview that I've wanted to do for a really long time. And it's one that I probably really struggled to write given that my brother and my sister are my two best friends in the whole world and I can't imagine doing life without them. So I really applaud you for your bravery in telling your sister's story and it is just such an honour to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Um, So at the top of the episode, I've explained a bit about your sister Holly and about Ewing sarcoma. Um, and we can get into the details of how that impacted her and her life as we go through the episode. Um, can you tell me um, who your sister was and what she meant to you? And can you share with us a favourite childhood memory of something that you guys did together when you were little kids? 
Okay. Yeah, so me and my sister, so yeah, I, I only have one sibling. Holly was Holly was my only sister. Um she was a very energetic and sporty um character. So I guess in our house household sport was a really big thing. So um me and Holly were really involved in playing um hockey um and squash and Holly was actually quite good at it because she made the state teams um, during our school years. So, yeah, she, she was, just, it was just really happy childhood. Um, we grew up playing a lot of sport. Um, I guess like, Grafton is quite a small town, so it was a nice, um, it was a nice upbringing. Um, it was, everything was really close. You could really ride your bike anywhere. So we were always, you know, quite active, riding our bikes around, walking around to the friends' places. Um, training for sport um, and yet yeah, there wasn't really much spare time in the week when you accounted for study and sport so yeah we we had a, a very I think I'd say privileged um, childhood growing up and I guess some of my favorite childhood memories with my sister would have been probably our road trips when we went away or went camping down the beach um, I guess me and my sister had a little bit of a love-hate relationship I would always Mum used to call me a shit stirrer and she used to call Holly a whinger. Um, we'd always be sort of bickering in the back of the car, but we were still very good friends. We always, you know, liked to play together. Um, so, yeah, I guess my favourite childhood memories would have been, yeah, camping, camping with her, going down the beach, um, fishing, swimming, um, doing those sorts of things at our, um, I guess, our beach residence down in Corinda, which is not too far from where we live. So, yeah, that was a... It was a pretty good time growing up and ultimately we both moved to Brisbane too so we got to um, stay pretty close um, in the years when when Hull moved up here. Um, we both graduated uni up here and started work up here so yeah I guess we sort of we, we always stayed um, in close contact and we'd always be uh, talking to each other um, either by you know messaging on Facebook, messaging by phone on a daily or you know every couple of days. Sounds like you just had the idyllic, quintessential Aussie childhood. It's just such an Australian description of childhood that you've had there. It's just beautiful. Um, and I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry for you, Lostine. Like it just, I just, I can't imagine. So thank you for having the bravery to share this story. Um, you have two daughters, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So I've got a two and a half year old Ruby and Willow. Um, is seven months old now. Um, luckily, I've got my headphones on now because I'm sure they're sort of running around upstairs and yeah, causing havoc for my wife. But yeah, they're they're full on. Haven't really slept a full night since Ruby was born. But yeah, they are yeah good little entertainers. They're they're 100 mile an hour until they go to sleep, and then you sort of get a, a two hour reprieve before <laughs> before your own bedtime. So. Yeah, no. With those age groups too, they'd tag team. One would wake up while the other one's asleep. <laughs> um, have you thought about how you will tell them about their Auntie Holly? We have had some loss in our family and we have very much said to our children that just because we can't see people anymore doesn't mean that they're not still part of our family and we don't still love them. And we very much weave people who have passed through our family story because we think that's so important for them to know, you know, where they've came, you know, where they've come from and that part of our family. Have you thought about talking to the girls about Holly? Yeah, 100%. 
we we talk about it often actually. Um, there's Ruby likes to get on our little electric piano upstairs, and there's a picture of my sister sitting above it, and she always points to her and says, "That's Holly." Um, there's also my sister's letter, which I think you've mentioned um, in the intro. Um, it's it's framed there, sitting above um, the piano. So yeah, that's sitting there as a little, I guess, place for Holly and my eldest daughter Ruby will always open our phones up and scroll through the pictures. She'll see Arnie Holly and she recognises her automatically. Um, and also those pictures are on the background of my mum and dad's phone. So she knows about it. She knows she's not here. Because um, yeah. we've sort of explained the concept of, of death to her because we, I guess my childhood, well, the dog that my sister selected um, when my grandma passed away in 2005, passed away early this year, he had a really good innings. And Ruby always talks about Toby. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, his life came to an end at the start of this year, but she still, she understands mm -hmm. that he was here. Um, he's not here anymore, but she still talks about him. And she's, I think, well, whatever we do that, she'll be comfortable asking us questions about Holly. We don't intend to, you know, keep it as a voodoo topic because, you know, mm -hmm. she will see pictures and she'll want to know about her. So we've just, whenever she asks something of us, we're just completely honest with her. And, you know, she accepts that and moves on with things. So is that the dog that Holly referred to in her letter or is that a different dog? No, so so Toby is yeah, our family dog. Oscar yeah. is the dog that Holly's partner um, had. And it's sort of, in, that dog yeah, has a lot of connections with Holly because I think when Luke, her partner first got the dog, um, on their first date together, they came back and Oscar um, had escaped the yard. So their first sort of <laughs> experience together was looking over the neighbourhood for Oscar. Oscar, um, yeah, he's he's a boxer. He now lives up in North Queensland with Luke's old man. And, um, yeah, he was very, very protective of Holly. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, he would just, when, when Holly was sick, I think was, in some way I think he did really know because he was just, constantly sitting by her bedside and and yeah holly said he did get extra protective so he wasn't i guess he did used to bark at um people that would come past the house but he became extra vigilant when holly was sick and um she was at home so yeah i think he he sort of knew what was going on the whole time too he, he's getting a bit long in the tooth now too he's about 10 years old mum and dad went and visited him visited him uh early this year and they hadn't seen him for was probably nearing four and a half, five years, and he immediately recognised them and just apparently went insane, jumped up on them and just yeah, went berserk, was just running around in loops. So, yeah, it's funny how dogs have, you know, this um, this knowledge that we probably don't give them credit for and just an amazing memory. Absolutely. So, yeah, he's, he's yeah. still kicking on. He's still living the good life up, up in North Queensland. So, so that's good news. And, yeah, they definitely know. So our daughter, Marley, has a seizure response service dog. Um, and he can alert to seizures sort of two to four hours before she has an onset of seizures that he knows her better than we do as parents now. And we had last night, only last night, she, he just wouldn't 
go to bed. He sleeps in a crate next to her bed, but he wouldn't get down off the bed. Like when I gave him the command to get down, he was just like, no, I'm not leaving my girl. And we knew like he wasn't even alert barking yet, but we knew that something wasn't quite right. And that, you know, let us know that we had to monitor her very closely through the night. And he just knows. And the judgment that he looks at me with at times, you can see him just going, um, can you not see that your girl needs something done here? Like, he just knows her so yeah. well. They're just so intuitive. <laughs> so we're very grateful. So I'm all about what dogs can do. We don't deserve dogs. We don't deserve them. They're absolutely beautiful. Yep. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we've really tried to highlight through this podcast is that blood products can help to prolong life. Um, but also to improve quality of life. Um, how much of a shock was Holly's diagnosis and how much time did you have with her from diagnosis until she passed? Yeah, so in a way it, it, it was a shock because the diagnosis um, Holly received was, it was a stage four Ewing sarcoma um, and as you know, the prognosis for stage four cancer is, is not very good. In the lead up to that diagnosis, though, probably in the months preceding that, Holly did have a few medical issues, you know, like nausea, sore knees and things. Um, and she'd been to the doctors a number of times. And I think because those side effects would often um, abate over time, she just thought, okay, I can, I can it, it, I'm all good to go again. But yeah. It was, yeah, I guess it must have been early in November 2016. I think she was feeling around her abdomen and she felt a lump and she's like, all right, I know this isn't good and I'm not going to accept the doctors telling me to walk away and it's all going to be good this time. So she insisted on having it tested. She was biopsied. It took, an, I think, a number of weeks before they came back with the diagnosis because Ewing sarcomas are categorised as a rare cancer. So right. um, when we got that news, so stage four diagnosis of a rare cancer, um, like with Marley's condition, um, mm. that's not good news because when things are rare, it often means that the treatments um, for them are appropriated from other conditions similar to them. So you haven't got, um, you know, specialist research and attention being dedicated to um, developing treatments for that specific condition. So. That, that was, yeah, com obviously completely life-changing for Holly because she was, up until that point in time, extremely fit. Um, as, as I said, we were really into sport growing up. Holly had graduated from nutrition and dietetics. Um, she, she, yeah, received her um, bachelor's degree, I think, in 2014. she just received, or she'd started work at Redcliffe Hospital, ironically, on the oncology ward. Um, you know, she was running... She was running 10 kilometres a week, um, sometimes like multiple kilometres on a day. So she was extremely fit, um, hypervigilant about the things she ate. Um, but yeah, like <laughs> the way things worked, it was it was like a lightning strike. Um, she just drew the sh short straw, and she yeah. So she was diagnosed on the 31st of was it October 2016, and we had her for 15 months. She passed away 15 months later. On January 4, 2018. So it wasn't it wasn't a lot of time um, because I guess you know if you look at look at the averages now for uh, average life expectancy for women, I think it's about 85 now for a, for a child born today. For for a woman, um, she wouldn't have even seen out a third of her life, and she'd 
you know, she had a good, strong relationship with her partner. I think they were just getting ready to gear up. Uh, they bought their house, they were getting, getting ready to start a family, and then this happened. So out of the blue, changed everything in an instant. And yeah, Holly, two days later, had to start chemotherapy treatment. There was no time to wait because they knew um, it was bad. The, the metastases, had, at least we knew, had, uh, had formed in her knee. Um, so yeah, so she had uh, one in her abdomen. I think it was, it was sitting near her pancreas. Um, second one in a knee later basically spread throughout her, her whole body. But um, obviously the purpose of the podcast is to talk about, um, I guess, the importance of blood donation because so Holly started chemo two days later and throughout her treatment she needed, I don't know, probably hundreds of bags of blood products, particularly platelets. Um, mm -hmm. Platelets are really important because they have a very short shelf life um, and yeah, Holly, I went up to hospital on a number of occasions with Holly um, while she received treatment. She was obviously up there every every week, every second day, getting a different concoction of drugs or, or blood products. Um, but yeah, the, the the really sad thing was that there are a number of, like, if you think about it, you, you're diagnosed, you're given a fixed number of days to live. For Holly, it was, you know, around 450 days. So she didn't have much time and she would go up to the hospital and because yeah, there weren't enough platelets in circulation, um, sometimes we'd have to sit up there for hours. And she loved the medical staff, they're amazing for her, but you know, if you've got a fixed number of hours on the planet, you really don't want to be sitting up in hospital praying that, you know, for the generosity of someone else to give blood so that you can receive that critical um, I guess for Holly it wasn't life saving, but it was life preserving because without a doubt mm. she would have lost her life within months um, mm. and yeah so I guess that's really what on top of what I'll touch on later Holly's request for me to promote blood donation that you really hit home so you know that this huge burden of blood donation um, you know I think there's around 500,000 um, people that donate blood in Australia um, I've heard other statistics, you know, one in 33 people will donate blood, but one in three people will need those blood products in their life. So if you're, sit, if you're listening to this podcast right now in, in the car with your two kids in the back and your partner by your side, statistically, one of those people is going to need a blood product in their life. And you are relying on the generosity of, I guess, one in 33 people to donate blood. So it's really important i guess it's the whole reason you started the podcast it's the reason i came on to chat to you about holly's story that's why we need to promote other people donating their time to give blood because if they don't there are going to be people like marley like holly sitting in hospital waiting unnecessarily for hours you know to get treatment and they don't want to be there so hopefully um you know people will hear this message and go all right, I've been putting it off for too long. I'll put my name down. I'll call Lifeblood. The number's 131495. Give them a call. Make your booking. And hopefully, you know, you will be saving someone. You won't know who they are. You might hear some of them speaking on your podcast, but you will be paying it forward to them. And they'll be forever grateful. I know our family was. So, yeah. yeah. 
that's why I agreed to come on and um, speak about it. And that's literally the reason that I've started this podcast is to bridge that gap of anonymity between donors and their recipients. Um, you know, people that might be new to the podcast this season might not be across the fact that for Mali, um, blood products are life-saving for her when she has an acute re relapse, but every infusion in between that she has is life-preserving. And it's not just about keeping her alive, but making sure that she has a reasonable quality of life as well. And it sounds like when, you know, being neutropenic post-chemo and needing the platelets, that those platelets also improved Holly's quality of life so she could enjoy to the best that she could the time that she had left. 450 days isn't many. And it's not fair that some of those were stolen yeah. by sitting in hospital because there wasn't enough blood there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. But, um, you know, the, if, we, if we can get just one person from listening to this podcast to go out and donate platelets, you know, it will save one extra yeah. person sitting in there for a few hours and they might have much time left. So you're buying that for them and their family to spend precious time with them. And you're also, I guess, unclogging the hospital system which makes it yeah. more of a streamlined process for everyone else so it's, it's not you're not just benefiting the person you're benefiting you know the families the whole hospital system that relies on the generosity of blood donors um that's mm -hmm. why it's so important for as many people as possible to donate because yeah you'll 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 either save save life preserve life or buy people time so they're pretty good things um to think about when you're sitting in the blood donor chair, you might, you know, wince when that needle goes in your arm, but when you walk out, it's always a very good feeling knowing that, Absolutely. you know, someone that you'll never know is going to benefit mm. from that time that you've sat there um, of no cost, really just your time to, to help them out. So it's always mm. yeah, a very good feeling. I think when I walk out there, um, that's why I keep doing it. So I've, I think I'm up to about 36 donations now. Most of those, I think 99% yep. of those have been plasma. So maybe some of my plasma has gone to Mali. I don't know, but <laughs> I love that. I love it's that. Good knowing so that much. I love people the like her benefit there's a little bit, Yeah, there's a little bit of you floating around in my daughter, keeping her alive. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So you just to change the tempo a little bit. Um, you wrote Holly's eulogy, and she asked you to encourage everyone at her funeral to donate blood and other blood products. She also wrote a farewell letter called Life Advice, and we've popped a link to that in our show notes, and I've mentioned some of it at the top of the episode. But she opens it in saying, and I've cut a few little bits out, but this is the sentiment of it. It's a strange thing when you accept your mortality at 26 years young. It's just one of those things that you ignore. The days tick by and you just expect they will keep on coming until the unexpected happens. That's the thing about life. It's fragile, precious, unpredictable, and each day is a gift, not a given right. As I said, I'll pop a link to that in our show notes, but for anyone that hasn't read it, your sister Holly wrote an incredible letter in the final stages of her battle with cancer, and it has had hundreds and thousands of views and shares in Australia and all over the world, and I can't imagine that you would even be able to measure that accurately once it takes on a life of its own on social media. So I'm sure it's bigger than that, and it's certainly something I was very aware of when I heard your name. Can you tell me about that letter and what it means to your family? Yeah, like, <laughs> it's interesting because so probably like in the weeks leading into 
um, Christmas of 2017, which was basically two weeks before Holly passed away. Like we were, we spent a lot of time together, basically just laying on a bed and chatting about random things. And I sort of asked her the question, I said, Holly, is there anything you want me to do? Like, is there any legacy you want to leave? Um, like, just tell me and I'll do it. And she's like, oh, look, not really. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm all for mediocrity. I, I don't, I don't want anything, you know, in bright lights. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm at peace with what's going to happen. Um, but I have started writing this letter and I want you to send it to all my friends. She said, do you, do you want to have a little read of it and see, tell me what you think? And I said, yeah, I'll read it. Um, and I guess the other thing about our relationship is we were brutally honest with each other. Um, you know, if I was being a dickhead, Holly would tell me that. And if I thought she was whinging or being a bit bitchy, I would tell her that. And, you know, she's asking me for feedback on a letter she's written to all her friends um, to be posted after she dies. And I, I read the first cut of it and, you know, it was sort of like an unpolished gem there. Like I could see it was going to be really positive for them. Um, had a lot of good messages, but I did say to her, "Oh, look, you're you're being a bit <laughs> you're being a bit brash um, on some aspects of it." And we we always talked about this, but we we really don't have a lot of time for just whinging about pointless things, you know. And I think yeah. Holly had made reference there to you know people complaining about going home and the traffic being bad and just going like, we don't give a shit about that. Like, don't pay any attention to that. Shut up. There's bigger things. There's more important things in life than worrying about those sorts of things. So I told her at that point, I said, look, that's the bit I'd probably tweak if I was you. Um, other than that, I think it, it's really good. But how did you want me to send it? And then she goes, well, I don't really care. You figure that out. So it wasn't called life advice from Holly. She just wanted me to post it to her friends. It could have been an email, but I thought, oh, well, it's, 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 it, I read it again because she sent it to me, I think a few days before she passed away. She'd finished it off by that point in time. And I didn't want to read it um, because I knew it would be hard to read. So yeah, I just left it there. She passed away in the early hours of um, January 4. Um, and as soon as we got home from the hospital, no one else, I don't think anyone else knew about it. So she told me, she trusted me to, I guess, release it. Um, and I said, oh, everyone, I hope you don't mind, but Holly had this letter, so I'll just post it. We had access to her Facebook. She gave me the, the password and she said, can you just post it on my wall and send it my, you know, just send yeah. it however. So I, I called it, I think me and Luke called it life advice from Holly because that's essentially what it was. Um, we posted it on there and then I think we left it for the day and then, we were doing other things um, for the day. And then when we came back and checked in the afternoon, obviously a lot of Holly's friends had shared it um, and it sort of, you know, I've never graded anything viral before, but it went nuts. Mm. And yeah, I think when I checked it a few years ago, I think there were a few hundred thousand shares of it, which means probably a few million people have read it, you know, all international yeah. media outlets had picked up on it. Um, it was being reported on USA Today. Got, posted by a US press secretary at one point, you know, it just went went insane. So yeah, it it all it all came about from like and the, well, the irony is that Holly said, 
no, I don't. I just want to live a life of mediocrity. I don't want you to do anything. And then she wrote that and then it blew up and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it sort of resonated with a lot of people. But obviously the key message in it was the final paragraph because that's where she's talking about donating blood and the other thing she'd done before um, she said that she'd written this letter, she also called me into a room and said, um, can you write my eulogy? And obviously that's very hard to, it's very hard to be asked by a sister to do that, but we were, we'd accepted her fate. And I said, yeah, I'll write your eulogy whole, but I'll start writing it and you've got to give me feedback too. So I started writing it and I gave her the first cut of it and she goes, it's good, but it's not what you need to say on the day. And I said, oh, okay, what's wrong with it? And she goes, oh, you're just basically talking about our childhood memories. I want you to talk about more about my life and, and obviously you need to emphasise the blood donation thing at the back and at the back end of it. And then she also said to me, because I have a, I've always had like, it's, it's probably fair to say it's a phobia of needles. She goes, and you've got to start donating blood too. And I said, all right, I'll do, I'll do that. Um, fair enough. So yeah, and the eulogy, I, I made sure that I drew particular attention to that. I said, you know, you're probably not going to remember anything I say in this eulogy because you're going to be upset, but make sure the one thing you do remember is that Holly relied on blood donation. So get out there and do it. And that's what I did. And yeah, thankfully, um, there are a lot of people that have since contacted us from around the world. A lot of people in the USA did, you know, blood donation drives in Holly's honour. We got, <laughs> yeah, so many messages from people going, look, here's a picture of me. I'm donating blood. Thank you for inspiring me to do it. So that was, yeah, from all the uh, I guess negativity that came from the situation that was a positive thing so hopefully you know thousands of people worldwide have donated because of her and I'm hoping a lot yeah. of them were new donors that have um, kept up their efforts because yeah that's mm -hmm. yeah she really has yeah left a lasting no, impact no, and I think that's probably the thing that mum and dad and the rest of the family are most proud of that she was able to reach so many people and hopefully through this channel too it'll maybe get a second wind again but I'm sure lots of people turn to it when they're not having a very good day read the letter and go okay my life isn't that bad um mm -hmm. there are people in worse situations well, than me so quite a few yeah of good our knowing listeners. you had that yeah quite a few of our listeners have actually when I've done a call out for people um, like for nominations of guests I've had quite a few messages that have said, oh, you know, that chick, you know, from Grafton, people couldn't quite put all the pieces together of exactly how it was, but it's one of those things that I don't think there's too many of my friends or people, you know, that use social media regularly that wouldn't be aware of that letter. And I think we have said so many times since Marley has been sick, you know, we've found it really difficult to look at the struggles of other people's lives and we use that just get a real problem is one of the things that we'll say under our breath quite frequently and she encapsulates yeah, that definitely. so beautifully <laughs> you know just get a real problem like go and live your life and live it to the fullest and it is you don't you don't want to sometimes find the sunshine in the rainbows in a shit storm of complex medical stuff especially when it's potentially fatal or has taken your sister in the way that it took yours but 
to have that as a lasting legacy with such incredible strength and humility and to depart the world with so much gratitude for the people that were able to give her more time. It's more than any of us could hope for in some ways. And I'm so grateful to you for continuing to share that story and for keeping that memory of hers alive because people like my little girl benefit from it. And it, you know, it keeps in our family, it keeps a daughter with her parents and a little sister with her big brothers. And I'm grateful to you and what you do for giving my brother, my boys more time with their sister. So thank you so much. We'll close it out. Um, We've covered it a little bit, but you are a passionate blood donation advocate and a donor yourself. Do you have a final message for Australian blood donors and anyone who's considering becoming a donor for the first time? Yeah, for sure. So I think a lot of people share, um, I guess, a fear like I did of needles. Um, I've been, ever since I was young, like, you could talk to my family about all the episodes that have gone on with me and and needles. I mean, when I when I was a young kid, I walked under a, a a seesaw and broke my collarbone. I hid under the chairs and wouldn't get a needle. Um, when that happened, I bit my dentist to avoid needles. I locked myself in the toilet to avoid um, vaccinations when we were going to Bali. Like I was very scared of needles. Like um, as much as anyone, I'd say it's probably the only thing that I can think of where I'd say it would have been a borderline phobia but when you go into the blood service not a, not only you're doing uh, i guess um a good thing for fellow humans but you're working with uh, a team of dedicated individuals that do this all day every day um for the, for the, and they've done that for a number of years so a lot of people will be scared oh, does the needle hurt not really because this is what they do every minute of every day. Um, so they're quite experienced with it. I've, I've given blood 36 times. I won't deny that I've been anxious every time I go in there, but they've never missed a vein and it's always been a seamless yeah. procedure. They treat you like king or a queen. Um, they give you good food, they entertain you. They're very friendly. Um, so the experience is, you know, it, it there's probably very few, um, things you could say to improve the process. Like the, the blood service is amazing and the people that they recruit to donate blood um, are all committed to the cause. So if you're concerned or you have reservations about going in there, you're dealing with very experienced people. Um, they'll make it a comfortable um, experience for you. Um, and when you walk out the door, you'll feel good. And for the people that donate blood and plasma products, you know, days later, you'll get a message on your phone that says, um, Whoever you are, you've just uh, your blood products have just been um, used at the you know the children's hospital to save a life on the cancer ward. Thank you very much. And you know, in a world where you're only really getting negative news at the moment, um, you can't you can't buy happiness. But that's about as close as you can get to it. So I'd say to people, if you want to do something that'll make you happy, you probably can't look much further than this. Um, yeah, you've got to donate your time. Yeah, you might sting if you get a needle, but um, all the positives that emanate from that um, makes it completely worthwhile. And that's why I keep going back. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd encourage you to do it. Um, the process is so easy. Um, go online right now. You can find out if you're eligible to donate. I've heard recently that they're looking at changing the rules for, um, I guess, British expats or people that have lived in the UK. 
So you'll soon be able to donate. I think they're soon to change those rules. So um, yeah, there's really no excuse. <laughs> Please go out there. Um, Marley, Holly, and thousands of other faceless individuals need you to do it. Um, and as I said before, there's uh, so few people shouldering a huge burden. Um, if you can do your part, that'd be great. So that's all I'd say to those people considering it. Don't delay. <laughs> the time is now. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, Dean. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me, Kate. I am so grateful to Dean and to all of Holly's family for trusting me to share her story through this podcast. It's such an honour to be able to contribute to her incredible legacy of blood donation advocacy. Holly's letter concludes with the following statement. Blood donation, more bags that I could keep up with counting, helped keep me alive for an extra year. A year that I will be forever grateful that I got to spend here on earth with my family, friends and dog. A year that I had some of the greatest times of my life. Till we meet again, Hull. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is presented by me, Kate Fisher, with audio production and Welcome to Country by my amazing husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, call 13 14 95 and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood Team Tally, especially during National Blood Donor Week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Milkshakes for Mali. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, follow, rate and review and follow us on socials and share this podcast with a friend. Please also reach out to us to nominate guests for the podcast through the Milkshakes for Mali Instagram page. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my prize, Mark.